Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 6, or you can also turn to the insert. The insert has several passages that I will read there printed for you. Ephesians 6. We are studying the armor of Christ given to us, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, gospel shoes, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation. You'll probably notice that all of these pieces so far have thus been defensive uh, to fend off the attacks of the devil, the sinful flesh that we face, the world that is the vestige of the devil's work. Now the final piece we come to in Ephesians 6, verse 17, the sword of the Spirit. Now we have a piece that's not only defensive but offensive as well. We are talking about the Word of God, the sword. I'm going to read a few passages building to the passage for this morning because like these other pieces of armor, they have background in Scripture. There are other places that refer to these same features of God's or Christ's benefits for us. Speaking of the Messiah, first, in Isaiah chapter 11, the prophet Isaiah, writing 700 years before Messiah's advent, wrote the following. This is Isaiah 11, 3 through 5. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. This is the Messiah. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The last book of the Bible, the revelator John the Apostle wrote of Jesus Christ in his vision. Revelation 19, 13 through 15. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. The author of Hebrews writing on Jesus' fulfillment of all those signs that came before him, all those figures that came before him, those offices that came before him. Then it says in Hebrews 4, verse 12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, the passage we have before us once again. After the whole of the epistle, building on the finished work of Christ, your adoption as sons and daughters, secure in him, now the armor of Christ given to us, we read in Ephesians 6, 14 through 17. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. 
Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, please sanctify us by your truth, for your word is truth. Amen. Our passage today, the last piece of the armor, the piece of the equipment that God has given us through Christ. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. It was the late 1600s. John Bunyan wrote an allegory for the Christian life. Many of you are probably familiar. It's one of the greatest works ever penned, ever. Pilgrim's Progress. The name of the pilgrim traveling or progressing in this book or this allegory, the name is Christian. Christian meets the demon Apollyon, and he has occasion to draw his sword. Now, if you aren't familiar with the story, it's, it uses the exact imagery of Ephesians 6 applied to Christian as he pilgrims through this life, and he faces Apollyon. Bunyan writes, Then Apollyon, straddled quite over the whole breadth of the way, said, I am void of fear in this matter. Prepare thyself to die, for I swear by my infernal den that thou shalt go no farther. Here will I spill thy soul. And with that, he threw a flaming dart at his breast. But Christian had a shield in his hand, and with it he caught it, and so prevented the danger of that. Then did Christian draw, for he saw it was time to bestir him. And Apollyon is fast made at him, throwing darts as thick as hail. By the which, notwithstanding all that Christian could do to avoid it, Apollyon wounded him in his head, his hand, and his foot. This made Christian give a little back. Apollyon, therefore, followed his work furiously, and Christian again took courage and resisted as manfully as he could. This sore combat lasted for above half a day, even till Christian was almost quite spent. For you must know that Christian, by reason of his wounds, grew weaker and weaker. Then Apollyon, espying his opportunity, began to gather up close to Christian, and wrestling with him, gave him a dreadful fall. And with that, Christian's sword flew out of his hand. Then said Apollyon, I am sure of thee now. And with that, he had almost pressed him to death, so that Christian began to despair of life. But as God would have it, while Apollyon was fetching his last blow, thereby to make the full end to this good man, Christian nimbly reached out his hand for his sword and caught it, saying, Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy, when I fall I shall arise. He's quoting Micah 7. And with that, he gave him a deadly thrust, which made him give back as one that he had never received a mortal wound. Christian, perceiving that, perceiving that, made at him again, saying, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us, Romans chapter 8. And with that, Apollyon spread forth his dragon's wings and sped him away, and Christian, for a season, saw him no more. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God provides for us our main defense against sin and Satan, as well as our most powerful offense against the same. Yes, a defensive tool, a sword is, but it's an offensive instrument as well. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. What is meant by the Word of God spoken here? Well, very succinctly, we're speaking of the Scriptures. We're speaking of 
the Bible contained in the 66 books we have before us. This is the inspired record of God's Word. Jesus, the Word made flesh. The Bible is the record, ultimately, of Christ. The Bible provides the reason for Christ, the standards of Christ, the history of Christ, the coming of Christ, the purpose of Christ, the work of Christ, and the victory of Christ, ultimately told in the Scriptures. Even where Christ is not explicitly mentioned in a given text, he is the ultimate one in view. The Word of God testifies to the Christ of God. By the Word of God, we mean Holy Writ. It's in Psalm 119 where we gain the the greatest picture of the magnificence of the Word of God. Of the 150 Psalms, it's the longest, 176 verses. It's bigger than some of the New Testament books. One commentator said that Psalm 119 is the feast of all feasts in the Psalter as it unpacks every nuance imaginable about the nature of the Word of God. Listen to how the Word of God is described in answering our question, what is the Word of God? Psalm 119, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You see, in just the opening 11 verses, there are 176 verses. The opening 11 verses, the law of the Lord, that's the word of God. His testimonies, the word of God. His ways, his precepts, his statutes, his commandments his righteous rules, his word. Our confession of faith has a beautiful summary of what the Bible is. What is the word of God? I put it at the bottom of the insert. It says, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from scripture. This is what the word of God is. The word of God tells us the story of God's redemption through Christ and how we can be saved. The Word of God is delivered by God Himself to us through His Spirit. The person of the Holy Spirit responsible for relaying the message of God. Our catechism asks the question, what do the Scriptures principally teach? The Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. This is what the Word of God is. Take the sword of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, which is the Word of God. The Word of God, it provides for us the main defense against sin and Satan, as well as the main offense against the same. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And we'll notice how Paul describes the sword of the Spirit as the Word of God, the Spirit being the central figure here, uh, the person who, of the Trinity who gives us this sure word that we have. It's the agency of the Holy Spirit 
in the writing and accompanying of Scripture that makes the Bible such a special book, in the writing of it and as well as attending it. So the Holy Spirit oversees the, the giving of Scripture, and then the Holy Spirit, you may say, stays with the Scripture to make it effective for us and with the believer as the believer reads the Scriptures. The Holy Spirit is written it writes the, whole, the Scripture, and the Holy Spirit attends the Scripture. These are two very important dynamic features of the Word of God. It's being written by God and attended by God. First, consider with me how the Holy Spirit has written Scripture. This is what we mean when we use the, the language inspired, the inspired text, the divinely inspired text, the divine inspiration. Now, by inspire here, we don't mean to say um, it's inspirational, like it just makes you feel good, you want to go do something brave or something risky, that you're inspired to go do something. That's not the sense in which the Scripture is inspired by God. Uh, that, that's uh, importing a meaning that is not meant. In fact, it helps when some of the versions of the New Testament have done a good job, I should say the translations of the New Testament, have done a good job taking the Greek text and putting it more literally as breathed out by God rather than inspired by God, or God breathed, as it says in some of the versions. And that passage happens in 2 Timothy when Paul is writing to a pastor. The book is primarily about uh, shepherding pastoral ministry in local church, it's heavily weighted that way. And Paul writes to Timothy the following in 2 Timothy 3. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You see the dynamic of Scripture spoken of here. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or the woman of God, for that matter, may be complete equipped for every good work. We do well to translate that word theopneustis, theop God, theos God, neustis, breathe, God breathe. That's the literal translation. The scriptures are inspired, in, they are God breathed. They're written by the Holy Spirit. That's what is meant. Not inspirational as such, although it may be. To put it to you this way, Into Thin Air by John Krakauer is an inspirational story of the ill-fated 1996 trek up Mount Everest. Eight climbers died, but many more should have. It's truly an inspirational story of perseverance and survival. It's an amazing story. But that's not the sense of inspirational we're talking about when we talk about the Scripture being inspired. The Scripture is God-breathed. It's breathed out by God. What we have before us is the very will of God revealed to us. J.I. Packer always has done a great job at giving clarity to these doctrines. Divine inspiration is described this way. It's defined as a supernatural, providential influence of God's Holy Spirit upon the human authors, which caused them to write what he wished to be written for the communication of revealed truth to others. That's what's meant by the Holy Spirit writing Scripture. The text of Scripture is breathed out by God through human authors. In this way, the Bible is the product of divine inspiration. No other book is like it. It's not just another book that's a little more inspirational. It's the only book that's inspired this way, that's breathed out by God. Second Peter, we find a, another great description of this process. In 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. 
For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke as God, from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to have a God-breathed, inspired origin. Louis Burkhoff, another great theologian, captures divine inspiration this way. That is, the authorship of the Bible being the Holy Spirit. By inspiration, Burkhoff writes, we understand that supernatural influence exerted on the sacred writers by the Holy Spirit, by virtue of which their writings are given divine truthfulness and constitute an infallible and sufficient rule of faith and practice. To be very clear, when we speak of the Word of God, we're saying the Bible is the Word of God. Sometimes you'll hear in liberal theological circles, they'll read a passage and say, listen for the Word of God. That's a, that's a test. They're not saying the right thing. When I read the Bible, you're hearing the Word of God. You don't listen for the Word. It's, this is the Word of God. Because you could say that about anything. But it's the Bible that's inspired. And so that changes everything about our demeanor towards it. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Because the Bible is inspired, it's also inerrant. Because it's inerrant and infallible and trustworthy, it's authoritative for our lives. A difficult interpretation matched up with current culture does not make it in error. We're the problem, not the text. This is the Word of God. In addition to being authoritative, it's sufficient. It will give us what we need, either explicitly or by logical consequence. Principles fall out and give us guidance for decisions we make and ways in which we look at things. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God is written by the Holy Spirit, and it also is attended by the Holy Spirit going forward. It's written, it's dynamic because he wrote it, but it's also the promise of the Holy Spirit attending the reading and preaching of the Word come with it. There's no book like this. There's no other source like this. The author of Hebrews captures this with the passage that I mentioned earlier, the dynamic nature of the Scriptures. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of, of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It, the Scripture should work on us. We don't work on it, so to speak. The Bible is written by God. It's in a dynamic book because of it, because of the Holy Spirit's authorship, but the Holy Spirit's presence as well. The Spirit of God attends to the reading. When you read the Scripture, it helps. The Spirit helps you understand what you're reading and apply it, and especially the preaching of the Word. The preaching of the Word it goes another level of explanation and preparation for the people of God with application. And the Holy Spirit promises to attend God's Word. This is why it's so important to deliver God's Word. And I, when I teach new students what expository preaching means, it's simply this. The message of the sermon better have been the message of the text, or don't preach it. Because the people don't need something from you. They need the, the Word. The exposition of the Word is the message of the text is the message of the sermon. Invite the, this is, that's what the preached Word is. Not Tony's five ways in which you can get your finances in order. Now, I may have some ideas about that, but that's not the exposition of the Word on a regular basis that we need as the steady diet. Because the Spirit of God works through the Word preached, and it transforms us. 
One of the great passages of Scripture that really describes this for a people much like ourselves, uh, trying to understand this dynamic, comes in 1 Corinthians. Paul writes to the Corinthians in the second chapter of his first epistle to them. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, Paul writes. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So the Holy Spirit must illumine Scripture for us, or illuminate Scripture, make it understandable, applicable for us. It's the Holy Spirit's work to give us understanding of the truth of Scripture. He gives our minds capacity to understand and trust His Word. And by the way, it's not meant to teach the idea that it's a code book that you have to have a special understanding to get the code. It doesn't mean it that way. In fact, one author says, well, this work of illumination does not operate by giving us secret insight that one cannot derive by reading a text in context. Scripture is not a code book or the basis for fanciful allegorizing. Illumination, rather, takes what is already there and makes it real to us. The scriptures are not only authored by the Holy Spirit, but they come with the ministry of the Holy Spirit, as we read. Jesus said in praying to his Father before he went to the cross, sanctify them, his people, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them, change them, transform them by your word. The ministry of the Holy Spirit. Later in that same section I referred to on your, on your insert from the Westminster Confession, I like how it puts it. We acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary, the confession writer said, to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word. You know, one of the most freeing things as a minister of the gospel, and I encourage the young brothers especially about this, never lose confidence in the, ex, in the proclamation of the gospel. It does not need your help. It doesn't need anybody's help. Just make it very clear. What does the Bible say and say it? Because that's when God saves people and transforms people. And he may not now, but I've got hope for you that it will be next time or the next time or the next time. I just promise there will be a next time. There will be a next time if God gives me breath. Because you... The preaching of the gospel should be plain and clear, and that's what the Holy Spirit uses to born people again. How does it appear that the scriptures are the word of God? Our larger catechism asks, listen to the answer. The scriptures manifest themselves to be, themselves to be the word of God by their majesty and their purity, by their consent of all the parts and the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God by their light and their power to convince and convert sinners to comfort and build up believers unto salvation. Listen to this last line of that question or that answer. But the Spirit of God, bearing witness by and with the Scriptures in the heart of man, is alone able fully to persuade it that they are the very Word of God. Take the sword of the Spirit, my dear brothers and sisters, which is the Word of God. 
You know, I think swords as an analogy or a metaphor have lost some of their significance in this modern era. Because uh, much of modern warfare that we're aware of watching, or if some of you are veterans and seen, is usually from a distance. A lot of it is. Some have experienced that hand-to-hand combat that was completely common, especially in the times of Christ and really all the way up until a modern era. The days of swords, we're talking hand-to-hand, face-to-face, breath-to-breath combat between two combatants. Now, though, swords, which symbolize all that, they just sit on shelves normally. Homemade or handmade steel samurai katana swords, they sell for big bucks. They're found all over the place in the country, but usually hanging up over a fireplace. You might find a a model Roman gladiator full-tang medieval sword on the top of somebody's bookshelf in some office somewhere. They look nice, but their importance and their impact are largely lost on us today. The sword of Ulysses S. Grant, worth more than $2 million, sits under glass somewhere, and hardly anyone sees it every year. The, the sword of Napoleon, over 200 years old. It was said to even been used in battle. A lot of those swords were show swords for them themselves. That's worth almost $7 million. It's owned by a private owner in France. Private collection, only a few see. It just sits in a shelf. We have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We ought not think of it in these terms. This is not meant for us to have put up on a shelf somewhere or under glass somewhere. The sword should be in your hand. The sword should always be drawn in this life. We won't have occasion, not real occasion, to put up our sword. Our sword needs to be in hand, brothers and sisters. When we go to the Scripture, there is a picture. You call it the, the tale of two satanic attacks. Not a tale because they're historic occurrences, but the story of two satanic attacks that really could not be more profound for all of us here in their implications. The first satanic attack in view comes in Genesis chapter 3. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, and notice what Satan does. We know the wiles of the devil and the darts he throws. He said to the woman, did God actually say? See what he's doing. Going at the word of God. To contort the word of God. To skew the word of God. He says to Eve, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, if Eve's sword is drawn, or Adam's who was there, his sword is drawn. That's not the word of God, which you just said, Satan. The devil moves to twist God's word. God told Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the devil says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And Eve at that moment fails concerning God's word. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither should you touch it lest you die. See what's happened. The devil's got her off balance now. She's confused about what the word of God says. The sword's out of her hands, you might say. He didn't say anything about not touching the tree. He said not to eat from it. But now she's shaken. She's off on God's word and his promise. And the devil pounces because her sword is down. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What God says is not true, Eve. Don't trust God's word. God is keeping you from happiness. No one else believes what God says. God is out to harm you. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The swords of Adam and Eve were down. They disregarded God's word in their hour of testing. The devil attacked and they could not repel him or did not repel him. And let's face it, let's be straight up. What hope do we have of Adam and Eve, the first people who were without sin in their original creation, they still failed to fend off the devil with God's word? We've got no chance. We are without aid on our own. God said to the lying devil, and this is important for the future, He says to that lying serpent of old, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is an important promise because this is the close of the first tale of Satan's attack. The first Adam our representative who we fell with and fell with in the garden. One who would know and keep God's word would come as a substitute for Adam and Eve. The second Adam would come in the person of Jesus Christ. The devil would once again go right to the second Adam, just like he did the first, in order to make him fall. What would be his tactic? Would it be new these many thousands of years later? Matthew 4, we see the second of these two tales of Satan's attack, but this time it's the second Adam. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, to do or succeed at what Adam failed at as our representative. We cannot represent ourselves any longer. We need another representative. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And Jesus, we are told, answered, It is written. He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He answers Satan with God's actual word. Satan tries to twist the word. And Jesus, the second Adam, our representative, throws this back and gives him response with the word. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on on their hands it will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Responding with God's true word, the second Adam speaks to the devil who's attacking him. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you will serve. Then the devil left him 
And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now you know and I know that Jesus could have said to Satan as soon as he came, Be gone, Satan. But he said it is written for the benefit of us sitting here today to see the power of the sword, the power of the word of God, the victorious second Adam with the sword. So the sword we receive is one that has already won the victory. We see what it has done as it has sent the devil running. So draw your swords, Christian. That is the application of this passage. The word of God provides our main defense against sin and Satan, as well as our most potent and powerful offense against the same. So when the devil says to me, God does not love you, you sin too much, you're not redeemable, you've done this or done that, and that can, you cannot come back from that. The word of God I know says, but God showed his love toward me while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. I know the word of God says, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved me, even when I was dead in my trespasses, made me alive together with Christ. It's by grace that I've been saved, I could say to the devil. I could say, furthermore, who shall separate me from the love of Christ? Certainly not you, devil. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger sword? Knowing all these things, Satan, I am more than a conqueror through him who loved me. So he does love me. And I could say furthermore to you, devil, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor heights nor depth nor anything all in, in all creation, including you, Satan, will be able to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus my Lord. And one thing, Satan, one more thing. I've been defensive so far. Let me be offensive. The God of peace will soon crush you under my feet. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is with me. So brothers and sisters, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Oh Father, how firm a foundation has been laid for us in your excellent word. You have revealed your will so that our faith in Christ might be established and made firm. You have sent your Spirit to convince us and convict us to give us aid in applying your word. To, to the degree that we have put your word on the shelf, give us delight in your word afresh. May it be said of us as it was said of David, for we delight in your statutes because we love them. Lord Jesus, most of all, thank you for your victory for us. Thank you for your battle-proven armor that you have given to us. Thank you for your belt of truth, for your breastplate of righteousness that we wear, for the gospel shoes you've made us ready with, for the shield of faith that you've given us to extinguish the fiery darts of the evil one, for the helmet of salvation that gives us surety and clarity about our being right with you, and the sword of the Spirit, which is your word. We thank you for this equipping that you have given us. In Jesus' name. Amen.